Welcome to Fellowship Podcast. We're so excited you tuned in. For more information about who we are, check out our website at fbclife.org. Thanks for listening. Well, good morning, church. Like I said at the very beginning, I am really excited to be here with you guys. And listen, as we begin, here's what I know. I know this morning that you need hope. And I know you need hope this morning because, quite frankly, I need hope this morning. You see, one of the interesting things about my job is I get to come up here most Sundays and and preach a message about God's Word. And and what I know is that as I'm preaching that message, there are a couple hundred people in this room, a couple hundred people online who are all entering into that sermon from different places. Some of you, you come here, and man, you have a long history of meeting with Jesus in this room, of meeting with Jesus among this community of God's people, and you're excited to meet with Jesus again. That's a great way to step into this sermon. Some of you guys, you step into this sermon, and you're not even sure why you're here. You just know you want something more. We had a staff guy uh, with our church talking to a lady in our community this past week about Jesus, and this staff guy was talking to her, and she said, hey, I don't know about this Jesus guy, but, but I do know I need something more in my life. Some of you are stepping into this sermon that way. Some of you aren't even sure why you're here. You just came with a friend, and you don't even know really what's happening right now, and everywhere in between. What I know every time I step on this stage is that there are a couple of hundred different stories like that stepping into this particular sermon, but I also know that every single person hearing my voice this morning, do you hear me? Every single person, here or virtual, hearing my voice, needs hope. We came to this room Whether or not we're able to verbalize it this way, we came to this room because in the midst of the craziness that is 2020, we need hope from our God this morning, don't we? Can I be even more honest with you? Think about this. The God of the universe. Wrap your mind around that. Like the God who created everything sovereignly brought you to this room because he wants to give you what you need. And that need for hope, we can be real about this, that need for hope, That's only multiplied in 2020, hasn't it? Like, I don't want to be melodramatic and pretend that this year is somehow like the worst year in human history because it's not. Humans have walked through way worse than 2020, but we are in the middle of a pandemic that doesn't seem to end. We did just walk through one of the more contentious election cycles that I can remember. Some of the church's worst impulses seem to have come to the fore over the last season of time. The moral center that has held together our country for the last 244 years, and make no mistake about it, all of the founders knew that we needed a moral center if we're going to continue to exist as a country. That moral center seems to be eroding before our eyes. Our future is uncertain, so we walk into this room, and man, let's not pretend that we're doing some optional activity to make our lives incrementally better. We came here because we need to hear a word of hope from our God this morning. Even more, every sociologist and psychologist would agree that not only do you feel the need for hope, but hope is essential for human existence. You cannot continue to exist as a human without hope. Which is why, as we have lived in this relatively hopeless time here in 2020, we've seen our whole culture flailing about trying to find hope somewhere. Some people in our culture have been trying to find hope in substances in this season, haven't they? 
I saw a survey by a hospital in Florida. And listen, I know Florida, everybody's crazy down there. But listen to this. This, this, this hospital in Florida did a survey and 50% of surveyed adults had increased their alcohol use over the course of the pandemic. And listen to this part. 33% of surveyed adults had either started or increased their illicit drug use over the course of the pandemic. Some of us have looked for hope in politics like we've lived in six months of the crushing anxiety of every ad, every news show, every newspaper talking to us about politics all the time. Why? Because there are people in our country that are looking for hope in politics. Some of us have looked for hope in mindless media consumption, haven't we? Like, man, if I can just escape to that parks department in Indiana or that police precinct in Brooklyn, then finally, finally, I'll be able to recover a little bit. Some of us have looked for hope in anxiety. You know what anxiety is, isn't it, don't you? Like, anxiety is an attempt to, to protect ourselves from an unseen enemy by trying to control uncontrollable circumstances with our minds. Some of us have looked for hope there. Some of us have looked for hope in blissful ignorance. Like, if I can just pretend that 2020 is the invention of some people trying to manipulate me, then I'll be happy and okay. Or more likely, we've looked for hope in a cocktail of multiple of these different things, right? I'm coming off of a 14-day quarantine because I had an exposure, didn't have symptoms, tested negative this past week. And I can tell you that I've found myself looking for hope in multiple of these places. So can I be real with you? I'm an anxiety, mindless media consumption, blissful ignorance guy. That's what I go to. What about you? And now, six months in, with the election over, kind of, something has become painfully obvious to our entire culture. All of these things that we're looking for hope in, they don't work. Every single one of them over-promises and under-delivers. But as a pastor who loves you this morning, I have good news for you. There is someone who does not overpromise and will never underdeliver. And he's come to bring you hope this morning. You see, the Christian worldview gives resources for hope that no other worldview in our culture can give because Christian, the Christian worldview says that hope isn't a byproduct of circumstances or a hundred other things. Hope comes directly to us from our God. And so for the next six weeks, an obscure prophet from 2,400 years ago named Malachi is going to point us to real hope. And over and over again, Malachi is going to argue for us that real hope is found where God is. And God has chosen to draw near to us in love. I'm going to say that again. It's the big idea of what I'm going to say this morning. If you're taking notes, this is what you want to write down. Real hope is found where God is. And God has chosen to draw near to us in love. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump into Malachi 1. Pray with me. Jesus, we love you, and we don't just want to hear some words in a sermon this morning. We want to hear from you, and so God, I pray that you would speak to us, like right now in this room, God of the universe, speak to our hearts, that you would use my words to speak to my friends. God, that you'd be speaking to my heart as you're using my words to speak to my friends. And God, that we would leave this place having encountered the one true God who brings hope in his hands to people who can feel hopeless sometimes. We love you, Jesus. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, if you have your Bibles, meet me in Malachi. Malachi, this is one of those Sundays where there is no shame for jumping over to the table of contents. Feel free 
feel free to do that. Uh, if you want a, a, a clue in, in terms of how to get there, Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament, which matters. We're going to talk about that next week. I think it's important that Malachi is the last book in the, in the Hebrew Bible. There's a reason for that. Now, what you have to see, if you're going to understand the message of this beautiful little book, what you have to see is that Malachi is writing to a people who have been living in 100 years of 2020s. The people of Israel, when Malachi is writing to them, have been living through 2020 every year for the last 100 years or so. So in order to understand this book, you and I, we need to do a little bit of historical work. Now listen, I'm a history guy. I've told you that before. I'm reading about the history of the early democracy in my free time. That's how nerdy I am. You can pray for my wife uh, as she's trying to do normal person things, and I'm doing that. Uh, I love history, but you got to stick with me even if you don't love history because there is beauty in the history that lays behind Malachi. So I'm going to give you five minutes of the history of the whole first two-thirds of your Bible. Five-minute Old Testament history. You guys ready for this? Old Testament, here's the history of the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel started with one man. Everybody say one man. Awesome. And a promise. Everybody say promise. The God who created the universe chose Abraham. His name was Abram at this point and gave him a promise in Genesis 12 that goes like this. God says to Abraham, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you. I'll make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And in you, God says, through your offspring, he's implying, through your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And the story of the whole Old Testament is God sovereignly fulfilling that promise. It's the story of God making a great nation from the descendants of this one man, Abraham. And it's the story of God through those descendants showing who the seed would be, the Messiah, and how that seed would bless all the nations of the earth through his sacrificial death and his kingly rule. So here's what we see in the Old Testament. God, through his grace and the leadership of a guy named Joseph, builds the descendants of Abraham into a family clan that takes up residence in Egypt. This is the back half of Genesis. Then... God, through his grace and the leadership of Moses, takes that family clan, builds them into a nation, and then removes them from slavery to the single greatest superpower of the day and removes them into the wilderness. You can read about it in Exodus and in Numbers. Then God, through his grace and Joshua's leadership, takes those people and brings them into the land that he had promised them. You can read that about that in the book coincidentally called Joshua. That nation, through God's grace and Aaron's leadership, develops a vast sacrificial system that's a temporary pointer to the sacrifice of the future Messiah. And because God was not a good enough king for that people, through God's grace and Samuel's leadership, that people gets a king. That's a temporary picture to Jesus' future kingly rule. Now, follow me on this. The worship of God in the temporary sacrificial system pointing forward to Jesus and the, the rule of God through these faithful kings that also point forward to Jesus, they reach their climax, like their pinnacle in a guy named David and his son Solomon. You can read about it in 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles. But what we find is almost automatically, as the people of Israel reach the climax of what God has provided for them, almost automatically the people of Israel let little compromise after little compromise creep into their lives. 
So they begin thinking things like, hey, no big deal about that year of Jubilee stuff. Like if we followed that law from Leviticus, it'd be economic disaster. So let's just skip that one. And Solomon, 700 wives, 300 concubines, that's not that big of a deal. I mean, at least our treasury is growing. We're becoming more prosperous. Our land is getting bigger. And listen, those high places in the countryside where people are worshiping idols, that's in the countryside. There's not that many people there worshiping those false gods. And little compromise after little compromise builds in the lives of the people of God until 722 B.C., And in 722 B.C., disaster strikes. The Assyrians from, you guessed it, modern-day Syria, come to the people of Israel. They conquer the northern tribes of Israel, and they take them into exile. And what you have to feel is just how cataclysmic this would have been for the people of God. I mean, it'd be like Canada. I mean, this could never happen because it's Canada, right? But like Canada coming down here and taking the northern part of our country into exile back up to the great white north. Except for it's even crazier than that because the people of God live under the promise of God. And so they've been hearing for their entire lives, wait, God has given us this land forever and he's bringing a Messiah to come. And now the Assyrians come, they take them into exile and everything begins to be a place of doubt. Like, are God's promises even real? Is God even there? Hope is gone. You can read about it in Amos and Isaiah and Hosea. Darkness. Then, in 586 B.C., disaster strikes again. The people of Babylon from modern-day Iraq, they come and they take the southern tribes of Israel into exile. So Judah and Benjamin, they get to go in exile too. Hope is gone once again. You can read about it in Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and very appropriately, Lamentations, more darkness. Then in 539 B.C., after 50 years of exile, the Babylonians get taken over by another empire called the Persians from modern-day Iran. And those Persians then send the people of God back to Jerusalem. But Judah, that province that the Persians give them, is a shell of its former self. There are enemies all the way around Judah at this point. The the Persians are exacting an exorbitant price uh, tax from the people of God. In fact, the people of God are so depressed that they start to build the temple, get more depressed, and then they just quit. Hope is gone. More darkness. In 520 B.C., two prophets stand up. Haggai and Zechariah, you can read their books in the Old Testament. And they proclaim to the people of God, we've got to finish the temple. So what do they do? The people of God finish the temple, but hope does not return because hope isn't found in buildings. Hope is found in a relationship with God. Hope is found where God is. So there's more darkness. In 460 B.C., Ezra stands up on the temple steps, newly constructed, and he reads the law to God's people. And the people, they begin to follow the external rules of the, of the law of the first five books of the Bible. But hope does not return because external following of external rules does not lead to relationship. And hope is found where God is. So there's more darkness. In 445 B.C., a political leader named Nehemiah, you can read his book in the Old Testament, comes and he rebuilds the walls all the way around Jerusalem. So for the first time, the people of Jerusalem, they're safe and they have a measure of political prestige. But hope does not return because hope is not found in political power or safety. Hope is found in relationship with God. Hope is found where God is, so more darkness. And at this point, you can feel it, can't you? Like it's almost tangible. The people of God are hopeless. 
They're lost. They're walking in darkness. They rebuilt the temple, but the temple didn't bring hope. They started following the rules of God, but that didn't bring hope either. They finally got safety in their city. That didn't bring hope. And then Malachi, in 440 B.C., steps forward and brings a life-changing, astounding message to a people he loves, a message that is astonishingly relevant to us 2,400 years in 2020. Malachi steps forward and says that hope is not found in temples, it's not found in rules, and it's not found in political power. Hope is found where God is, and God has drawn near to his people in love. You see, if Malachi were standing on this stage this morning, I think he would say, listen, hope is not found in a vaccine. It's not found in a return to normalcy, whatever that is. It's not found in the ascendancy of a political party. Hope is where God is, and God has chosen to draw near to his people. Here it is, in love. Let's read about it in Malachi 1. Malachi 1, verse 1. The oracle, that, that word oracle is a, another word for a prophecy talking about God's blessing. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. This is interesting. Malachi's name means God's messenger. A lot of times in the Old Testament, you find people fulfilling the, the purpose of the name that God had caused them to have uh, when they were born. Malachi, God's messenger, says this. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Now, you need to do a little bit of work here. The idea of love and hate in the Bible is a little bit different than love and hate in our culture. See, we think that love is an active uh, thing and hate is an equally active thing. That's not the way the Bible views love and hate. Love is an active thing. It's God actively choosing to extend grace to his people. But hate in the Bible isn't an active presence of God. It's simply the absence of that active love. Does that make sense? So God is, it's not that God is actively hating Esau necessarily. It's that his love that he has for Jacob is not the same sort of love that he extends to, to Esau. That is radically countercultural. That's what the Bible says, though. Esau I've hated. I've laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may rebuild, but I will tear down. They will be called the wicked country and the, and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. All right, hope is where God is. And God has chosen to draw near to his people in love. Follow Malachi's logic with me as we walk through these verses. First, real hope is found where God is. And God has drawn near to his people. So look at verse two again. Malachi says this, God through Malachi, I have loved you, don't miss this, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother declares the Lord. Don't skip over this too quickly. God, in our book, is initiating a conversation with his people. In fact, we're going to see this all over the book of Malachi. Over and over again, there's going to be this back and forth between the people of God and their God. He's going to have a conversation with them. God initiates a conversation with a hopeless, half-hearted, cynical people. And here's what you need to see, church. This is what our God does all the time. 
Our God is in the business of initiating conversation and pursuing his people. He is the father in the prodigal son story who lays aside the privilege of his position, steps off the porch, lifts up his robe, and goes running to the prodigal while he's still far off in the distance. Our God is the shepherd who leaves the sheep on the, on, the, on the mountainside so that he can go pursue the one lost sheep. Our God is the one who in Acts 23, my quiet time a couple of weeks ago, who comes to Paul in his darkest, most shameful moment and says, listen, Paul, take courage. I'm with you. God is the one who 2,000 years ago added humanity to his divinity and came pursuing people by being born in a manger on that first Christmas morning. And God is the one who initiates conversation with a hopeless people in 440 B.C. through the prophet Malachi. You see, our God is a God who initiates relationship. In fact, I would submit to you that he most often initiates relationships. He most clearly initiates relationships often in the darkest of moments. He often speaks most loudly to us when all hope seems gone. Have you noticed that in our life? This is, this is the drum I've been beating ever since we came back at the end of May. Do not waste a global pandemic and crazy social strife. The God of the universe wants to speak to you in this season. Are you listening? God draws near to his people. Second, real hope is found where God is. And God has chosen to draw near to his people in love. Look at verse 2 here. Uh, Malachi says this, I have loved you, says the Lord. Let that wash over you this morning. The God of the universe looks across his people and he says, listen, I have loved you. The Old Testament gets this misconception about it. I'll have people come to me and they'll say things like, man, that Old Testament... It's that place of like anger and, and rules, but the New Testament, that's where the love and grace, that's where you find that stuff. And whenever somebody says something like that to me, almost automatically I think in my head, clearly that person has never read the Old Testament because God's love is all over the Old Testament. And in fact, God's love is what sets the people of God apart from all of the other people. Like, the people of God aren't God's people primarily because of how good-looking they are or how smart they are, how moral they are. What sets the people of God from, apart from all the other people is that God in his grace has chosen to set his love on them. Here's how Moses says it, talking about God's love in Deuteronomy 7. God loves the people of Israel because he loves them. Think about how comforting that is. God looks at his people and says, hey, I love you because I love you. Kate, my wife, from time to time, will ask me, uh, like on a date, hey, Justin, why do you love me? She wants me to be romantic. And whenever she asks me that question, here's what I'll always say. Deuteronomy 7, I love you because I love you. You can pray for my wife. It is a hard thing to be married to a pastor. She has to have lots of patience. But what I'm saying there is, is, is intentional at one level. Because if I say to Kate, hey, I love you because you're the most beautiful woman that I have ever seen. That's true. But listen, beauty changes. And, and I, I know I'm, I'm walking very close to a cliff's edge. All the husbands feel themselves like, oh, don't go there. All the wives are reaching into their purse to get a shiv. I get, I get that. Yeah, I don't foresee myself ever being in a place where I don't think Kate is the most beautiful woman that I've ever seen. But... My love isn't based on her beauty. I love Kate 
because I love her. Or if I say, hey, listen, I love Kate because she extends grace to me in life-changing ways. That's true. And it would win me romance points, but Kate doesn't always extend grace to me. We've got, we've got little kids in our house. She is stretched thin. For any number of reasons, she might not extend grace to me, but my love isn't based upon her extending grace. I love Kate because I love her. If I said to Kate, I love you because I love spending time with you more than anybody else on the planet, that's true. But listen, there are some times when I don't love spending time with Kate. Like that one time when I thought it'd be a good idea to take her golfing with me. I mean, I love golf, and I love Kate, and I thought if you put the two things together, it'll go well. And then I hit my first tee shot, and Kate said, hey, is it supposed to go that direction? And I said, "Ah, no. Do you want to go back to the clubhouse? Because... But I don't love Kate because I love spending time with her. I love Kate because I love her. That's it. Church, hear me. God loves you like that. Do you feel it? God doesn't love you because of how moral you are. God doesn't love you because of how sacrificial you've been with your time or your commitment. God doesn't love you because of your intelligence, your success, your foresight, or your eloquence. If you're a Christian, God has chosen to set his love on you, which means he proclaims across this room, just like he proclaimed to the people of Israel, I love you because I love you. Do you feel the hope and the freedom of that, what the Bible calls steadfast love? spoken over top of your life. God has chosen to draw near to his people, hear this, in love. Third, hope is found in God, and God has chosen to draw near to his people in love. God's love, third, changes everything. We're gonna need to do a little bit of Bible work this morning. We've already done a little bit. We're gonna do a little bit more. I'm I'm sure that as we read Malachi 1, one of the first things you began to think about is, hey, what's the deal with Esau? And then he throws in this word, Edom. What does that even mean? Here's how Malachi says it. Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. Malachi, as he's talking about Esau, is referring to the nation of Edom. So Esau and Edom, they're basically the same thing because Edom is filled with all of the descendants of Esau. 1,500 years later, all of the descendants of Esau are are in Edom. And as Malachi is writing, within a decade or so, Edom has been taken over by a group of people called the Nabataean Arabs. Don't worry about that name, but here's what's happened. There's a group of Arabs, nomads, who've come, and they've taken over the nation of Edom. Now, why does God, through Malachi, bring up Esau and Edom here? Well, part of it is to communicate that God is in control of all things, including geopolitics. Our God, friends, will not be confined to a nice, tidy box on a Sunday morning. Our God is in sovereign control of all things. He's sovereignly moving in grace and, yes, sometimes in judgment all over the world all the time. For a group of people in the nation of Israel who have been harassed by enemies, including the Edomites, for all of their history who have been sent into exile a couple of different times, do you feel the sort of hope that would come from hearing from their God that he's in control of all things, including political things? For a group of people in 2020, 
half of whom are disappointed or suspicious about an election that just happened, the other half of whom will be disappointed about how little changes because of the election that just happened. Do you feel how good it is to know that our God sits on the throne and is in control of all things at all times? He is the sovereign ruler of the universe, and that does not change. But listen, there's more happening here than just that. In order to understand exactly why God brings up Esau, you have to know a little bit about Genesis. If you you happen to read in Genesis a little bit later this week, you can go to the middle of Genesis, Genesis 25. There's a story of a guy named Isaac. Isaac is Abraham's son and his wife, Rebekah. Rebekah bears a set of twins, Jacob and Esau. Esau is the oldest. Jacob is the youngest. But God makes a promise over top of those twins that the older will serve the younger, which was crazy talk in the ancient Near East. All of the rights and benefits go to the oldest ones in in that culture, and the youngest one gets the scraps off his table. But God says, no, 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 no. I'm going to set my love on the youngest, Jacob and his descendants. And make no mistake about it, it's not because Jacob's a good guy. Jacob is one of the more despicable characters in the entire Bible, but God's love and his grace will rest on the descendants of Jacob and not on Esau. So things will go well for the people of of Israel. They'll go poorly for the people of Edom. That's the implication right there in Genesis 25. So what that means is that the nation of Israel, for all of their history, if they wanted to know the benefits of following the one true God, all they had to do is look over at the Edomites. And as they would look over at the Edomites, the people who started in the exact same place that they were, they would see the tangible benefits of following the one true God. They compare their lives to the Edomites, and, and they would see the benefits of following the one true God. And for the last 300 years, that's not been a good thing. The Edomites have been prosperous. The nation of Israel has gone into exile a couple of different times. But in our passage, what we see is that God has finally exercised his just judgment on the people of Edom who have rejected him over and over and over again. So the people of Israel can now look over at the Edomites and see the tangible, preserving, gracious benefits of following the one true God. The blessings of God are on display in real time as the Israelites compare their lives to the lives of the Edomites. Now, follow me on this. We don't have Edomites. Like, we don't have some person... More than likely, we're not twins, and we can look over and see the tangible benefits of following the one true God. But have you taken inventory of where your life would be if Jesus hadn't set his love on you? Have you taken time to think about that? Like, can I be real with you? I, I know where I would be if Jesus didn't choose to love and save me. I see it in a chunk of my classmates from college. I would be a slave to my career. My identity would be found in in monetary and vocational success, craving the affirmation of having more things to put on my LinkedIn profile. I would be all alone because all of my relationships would be transactional. I'd be looking for power and pleasure from people. More than likely, can I be real with you? I'd be divorced because I'd probably be able to fool my wife into marrying me, but eventually she would view me as transactional. She'd see that I view her as transactional, just like everybody else. More than likely, I'd be addicted to alcohol. Is that too real for you guys? But God set his love on me. And my whole life is different because of his grace. What about you? You see, I don't know you. 
And I would bet that everybody walks into this room and we're not exactly who we'd hope we would be at this point, right? Like we all walk in here and think, hey, man, I wish this was different. But here's what I also know. You're not who you once were, are you? God in his love and grace has changed your life. Praise him. Friends, hope is found in God. And God has chosen to draw near to his people in love. God's love changes everything. Now, this has massive implications for your life. One of which being the, the way that you actually live your life, like how you live your life has all the implications possible for whether or not you're gonna have hope. You see, hope for Christians doesn't come as the byproduct of something else. Hope as Christians comes as we relate to God, which means that how we live our life matters. We'll talk about that next week. But here's what I know. You don't need hope next week, do you? You need hope this week. Like, Malachi, give me something to walk through this week with hope. Malachi gives us exactly that in verse 5. Read it with me. Malachi says this. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Now, see what Malachi is doing here. He's not saying to the people of Israel, Hey, you need to learn more facts. Like the people of Israel know all the facts that they need to know. They know Edom has been taken over at this point. What he's saying is, people of Israel, you need to have spiritual eyes to see God's hand behind the facts. You need to have spiritual eye surgery so you can see the loving, gracious hand of God behind the events that are sapping you of hope right now. Do you know how you get that spiritual eye surgery? Through worship. What happens in worship, friends, is not that we're just singing songs. What happens in worship is that God in his grace causes our hearts to see the goodness and the greatness of his grace and his love for us. That's what happens in worship. Or as the old hymn goes, God tunes our hearts to sing his praise. You see, as we sing, God causes our hearts to see and to savor the goodness and the greatness of his grace and his love for us. And so if you want hope, like in the midst of the craziness that is 2020, if you want hope, what you need more than anything this morning is you need to worship. And as you worship your God, you'll find him building hope in your heart which means this last song that we sing, last two songs, they're not optional songs. Like this is not the time for you to click off because the sermon's over if you're watching virtually. You and I, we need to worship this morning so that God will build hope in our hearts. And then guess what? Guess what we need to do tomorrow? We need to open up our Bibles again and we need to worship God again. And then the next morning, and the next morning, and the next morning. And as you worship like that, you will begin to see, not just with your eyes, not just with your brains, but with your hearts, that real hope is found where God is. And God has chosen to draw near to us in love. Let me pray. Jesus, we love you. And God, I don't know where my friends are at. I know where I'm at. And God, I pray that you would help us to see the glories of a God who loves us. The glories of a God who proclaims over our lives, I love you because I love you. And that as we see your love for us, as we see the goodness and greatness of your grace to us, as we see the ways that our lives are different because you've set your love on us, as we see all of those things, God, I pray that we would see hope building in our hearts. God, 
proclaim these truths not just to our minds but to our hearts this morning as we close out in worship. We love you, Jesus. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information about fellowship or how to get connected, visit our website at fbclife.org and follow us on social media, 417 Fellowship. Thank you.